looking forward to this and dreading this scripture for, for the whole time that we've kind of been working our way through Luke. Um, it's, it's the genealogy, and I don't know if you've ever you know, read through the Bible, if you've worked at reading through the Bible, but you know, there's a lot of genealogies uh, throughout the Old Testament and then a couple in Matthew and Luke. And when I've been reading through those books, I've always struggled because it's just names and names and names. You know, and, and Luke, it's 70-some names that, that are mentioned. And, and it's just kind of hard to read through it and have any interest in it uh, without knowing some of the context. And yet, at the same time, there is a tremendous amount of material in the genealogy that, that kind of gives us a clue to who Jesus is. And so, so I want to kind of look a little bit at, at the concept of genealogies. We're not, don't worry, we're not going to get into and dig through name by name all of the people that are listed in the genealogy, so you don't have to dread that. There is also not going to be a quiz to see if you remember everything that happened in the genealogy. So, so you can just kind of relax and hopefully take in what we're talking about this morning. But, but there is some significance in the genealogy that we, that we need to point out. So we've, all, we've been talking, we've been thinking about the idea of our own ancestry, that, that we all came from somewhere. We know that, that, that there's a line, there's a family line for us. You know, our family name was Lindner, and that, that line goes back to, to German. But then on my mother's side, my mother's side goes back to, to England. And so that's kind of where those, those lines uh, came together through my, my mother's father and my, you know, the generations, a couple generations before me. So, so we kind of know maybe some of our own history. Maybe you don't know your own history. Uh, but if we look at our history, our history probably we could all, you know, understand a few things about ourselves. We could understand a little bit more about, about where we came from. For instance, in my family, uh, there's, a, there's an anger problem. You know, there's a, there's a great amount of literal rage in the Lindner line. And to give you an illustration of that, my my, uh, my, gra- my grandfather by birth on my dad's side, so my dad's biological father, um, he was abused as a child, but this kind of wasn't really made known. And then at the age of 26, he had an aneurysm and died, and the doctor came out and started questioning uh, the family on if he had been, you know, had any, you know, kind of head trauma, if he had had some abuse as a child. And at that moment, my my great-grandfather faked a heart attack, which they didn't realize until after he had died that he had actually faked that heart attack, but someone else in the family knew that he had faked the heart attack. It wasn't a real thing, but he faked the heart attack because he had been abusive as, as a father to my grandfather, and now it looked like that's, that was what caused the death of my grandfather. And so, you know, there's, there's uh, literal rage, you know, that comes in through our family line. I know a lot of families struggle with anger, so it's probably not necessarily specific to us, but, but it does come through there. So we can learn some things, I think, through our family line. We can learn some good things. We can learn, like, maybe you're a cousin to George Washington and you didn't know that, or, you know, Abraham Lincoln, maybe you're related in some way, and you've just been looking for a way to connect that, and, you know, so we can learn some good things. We can learn some sad things, some hard things that come through our family line. Some of us probably have, have histories that are very damaged and hurt and pain-filled, and the trials that have come through our family line are maybe more than we could even count, and yet God has still redeemed us in so many ways and, and cared for our families in so many ways, even been faithful through generation after generation of pain, persecution, and suffering. There's a lot that we can learn by looking back at our ancestry. 
But at the same time, we need to be careful about looking back at our ancestry and putting too much weight, I think, on our ancestry. And this is something Jim and I were talking about earlier this week or last week, is that a lot of people look through their ancestry to try to find an identity. Look through who, you know, who my grandfathers were and my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather and their cousins and, and so on and so forth. And we're looking through our ancestry to, to find our identity, to discover who we are. We're taking the DNA test to try to really come up with, with an identity of who we are so that we can identify as this or that. And while there's nothing wrong with knowing our heritage and our ancestry, for us in Jesus Christ, this is not our identity. So we need to be careful not to put too much weight on our ancestry and let that reign over our identity in Christ. Well, there are, uh, there are 70 names that are listed, or 77, I'm sorry, I can't remember right off the top of my head. I think it's, I think it's 11 seven, so it would be 77 names that are listed in Luke's genealogy. He starts at the very beginning with this in verse 23 that I want to show you. It says, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. And he says, he was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. And that's the beginning. And then we go through the son of, 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 the son of. Till we get to the very end, verse 38 says, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So one very important thing that's going to, that's going to be a big theme of, of what we talk about this morning when we're talking about ancestry that is different from Matthew's genealogy is that, that Luke actually goes all the way back to God. He, he brought the theme of Jesus all the way back to being the son of God. Matthew stops at Abraham and shows that, that Jesus went all the way back to Abraham, that he was the son of Abraham, but but Luke took it all the way back to the Son of God, and I think there's a very important reason why he did that, which we'll discuss in just a minute. But here is Jesus, the, the Son of God, and, and he would become the second Adam for us. Now, genealogies. Why are genealogies important? This is, I just want to kind of give you some information to help you understand why we even need to cover this, because I'll be honest, my inclination was, after trying to figure out a way to disseminate the information that's in the genealogy, my, my first gut reaction was, it's time to move on to chapter four. But I, I, I didn't think we could do that and be faithful to the text. So there are some significant things to note about genealogies. For, for one, in the Old Testament, genealogies, our ancestry, determined claims on land. And so if you had a claim on a land, you had to prove that through a genealogy that, that proved your inheritance. So if you had an inheritance, you had to actually prove that through your genealogy or your ancestry. This is what also provided the right to transfer property. So if you had a piece of property and you wanted to transfer it to someone else, you had to go through genealogical records to be able to do that. As we have seen at the beginning of Jesus' story, the, the genealogy also proved to be the basis for taxation because we heard, remember, that, that, uh, that Joseph and Mary were of the line of David, so they had to go to Bethlehem because they were of the line of David to be taxed. So genealogies determine those kinds of things. It determines where you came from. Two very important, important other aspects of genealogies is that any claim to the priesthood had to be verified through genealogy. If you were going to claim to be, to be able to be a priest in God's theocracy, you had to prove that through your genealogy. 
And the most important thing is that any claim to royalty, to being the king of Israel, or any claim to being the Messiah would have to be verified through the genealogy to prove that you are actually from the line of David. This is a very important part to note that also both Matthew's and Luke's genealogies converge to David. They come back to David. They go through chains in different ways and come back to David. Uh, Luke goes through Nathan, uh, which was Bathsheba's third son. If you know Bathsheba, you know the story that how, how David uh, saw her bathing on the roof, had her husband murdered, had a kid illegitimately through him. The first child of that was Solomon, and that's the genealogy that Matthew traces. The line that Matthew traces traces back to Solomon, and then Luke traces the line through the third son, Nathan. So they go back, even though they kind of spread and wander through different routes, they come back to David, the son of David. And so if he, Jesus is going to be lauded as the son of David, which everyone would be waiting for, then it would need to be clear that he was a son of David. So there are some of the, some of the impetus behind having a genealogy, and especially for the people that Luke would have been writing to, both the Israelites and the Greeks were, were consumed with genealogies, and we can see later in the New Testament that the genealogies were still important and that, uh, that the, the advice is to stop with the genealogies. It's, it's not important anymore. Jesus was the finish of the, of the importance of genealogies. So uh, there, there's some information there. Real quick, I want to talk about Matthew's, just, just one brief note, because Matthew includes four women in his genealogy, which is significant because genealogies throughout the Old Testament were always traced through the father, through the men. But Matthew decided to include four women, and the four women that he included were, uh, were well, one of them was Rahab, the prostitute, uh, they were, they were, they were uh, not, not really good examples. Let's just leave it at that. They, they, were, they were kind of insidious women who had done some, some bad things. And yet, they're in the line of the Messiah. They are a part of the lineage of the Messiah. And I think part of the reason that, that Matthew included the women in the genealogy is to, to show, you know, first the importance of Jesus bringing in all people into the kingdom, that, that women would be included, not excluded, but then also to show that there was, if you look at the rest of the line, you see this too in the stories, that, that grace was also a part of the line of Jesus, that Jesus being who he was was also gracious and that there was already grace that had been seen in his line and grace would be who he is. In Israel, genealogies had become a critical part of their history. In fact, they would have been a matter of public record. Even throughout their, their captivity, the Babylonian captivity, which uh, happened, I think, or began or ended, you have to ask Rob, in 586, that's the number, I don't remember if it began or ended then. Did it end or begin in 586? started in 586. So even when they went into captivity, they kept good records. They probably had to care for their records and keep records. And then when they came out of captivity, although they were never the same after captivity, they still kept good records all the way up until the time of Christ. And after Christ, 
the records had been kept until Jerusalem was actually destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman general Titus Vespasian, Vespasian, Vespasian in 70 AD, uh, and then all of the records were destroyed. So at this point, no one could actually trace their lineage back past that point. They may have kept records since then, but that's as far back as they could go. For us in Christianity, there's no need to, to have genealogies because the points of genealogies were to prove Messiah and kingship and to prove priesthood. Well, we learn in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is the great high priest. There is no need for a high priest after Jesus. And so, so now we can rest assured. We don't need to try to vet anyone that's coming out and saying there's a priest. We know that Jesus was the great high priest. We need no other high priest besides Jesus Christ himself. In fact, now we are all members of the priesthood because of our relationship with Jesus Christ himself. So we don't need to prove priesthood anymore through genealogy. And because Jesus was the Messiah, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We don't need to worry about proving that anymore. Jesus was the Messiah. Genealogies aren't all that important anymore. But now we get to, get to I think, what Luke is trying to emphasize in the genealogy. If you've been with us from the beginning when we started this back in the fall, we've been talking about that, that Luke is trying to make the case for Jesus Christ being the Messiah, and he's going to make it not only through what he has observed, but he's going to set the historical context as well as the cultural context so that all of these elements come together into one story to help us see that Jesus Christ is, in fact, who he says he was. We've come a great distance, it doesn't seem like it, but we've actually come a great distance in the story of preparing for Jesus Christ being the Messiah. We had the, the angelic announcements of both John the Baptist first and then, then Mary receiving the angelic announcement about Jesus being born. And then we had the miraculous births of both of those babies. Last week we talked about the baptism of Jesus Christ and we had this, this approval of heaven on Jesus Christ that he is God's son and God is pleased with him. Next week, we're going to have the victory over Satan as a part of Luke's proof that he was the Messiah, and we're going to talk about Jesus in the wilderness. But here we have the genealogy, and this is all in the context, the, 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 the argument that Luke is setting up. Jesus was the Messiah. We can prove it through these different things, including he came from the right line. Another important note. We talked last week, and it's mentioned in the text, that Jesus began his public ministry at the age of 30, and maybe you've asked the question, well, what's so significant about starting when he was 30? Why couldn't he have started earlier? I mean, he's the son of God. You know, certainly he was prepared for it before then. That's what I would, I would guess. You know, he, he must have been ready to start his ministry when he became an adult, but why did he have to wait until he was 30? Well, this was the accepted age. So Luke is making a point that, that even his age when he began his ministry is an evidence and a proof that he was who he said he was. This was the accepted age when people in Israel would recognize you as being authoritative. Ezekiel was 30 when he started his prophetic ministry. Joseph was 30 when he started his role as the prime minister of Egypt. David was 30 when he ascended to the throne of Israel. And Numbers 4 says that someone needed to be 30 to enter into priestly service. So being 30 was an important thing. Jesus may have been ready before he was 30, but he waited until he was the appropriate age according to what was established around him so that people would receive him appropriately. 
So even in one little detail, it's important for us to know that Luke is including everything intentionally so that we can track the Messiahship and the kingship of Jesus as our Savior. That brings us to verse 38. Yes, I skipped all the way to the end. I'm going to cover a couple of names as we go through this, but, but there's, there's the biggest point that I want to make this morning in, in verse 38. It says, The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Yes, as was important for us to know, he's the son of David. He can, in fact, be the Messiah because he's the son of David. He was also the son of Abraham. So yes, he's the son of the father of the Israelite nation. So he is the son of Abraham. He's, he's the son of Adam. And we can see that as we trace uh, Abraham's line all the way back to Adam. He's the son of Adam. And those are important things for us to note for, for the, hum, the humanity side of Jesus. But most importantly, we need to understand that he is the son of God. He was not just a man born of man. He was divinity born of the divine. Adam was the first son of God on earth. He was made in God's image. He was a son of God as God desired us to be sons of God. Adam, when God created him, he was unpolluted, he was uncorrupted, he was sinless, and he was set apart for relationship with God. And the first few moments in our biblical history show the perfection of that relationship, that Adam had been created to exist in relationship with God, and they enjoyed that relationship in community and face-to-face interaction in the garden. This was the first son of God on earth. But then Adam sinned. God had given Adam, the whole garden to enjoy and to rule and had this one command, don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. And because of the questioning and uh, the shrewdness of the serpent, they were lured into through Eve and then Eve lured Adam into disobeying God and they sinned against God and everything changed. When Adam disobeyed God, the original image of God was shattered And since then, not a single person, aside from Christ himself, has entered the world as a true, unmarred, unblemished son of God. Every descendant of Adam, everyone born since Adam is corrupt. It's good news, right? All of us are corrupt. If you you didn't know that, we're all born corrupt. We were corrupted from birth. But then Jesus comes, and and it's a little bit different, right? When Jesus comes, Jesus comes into the world perfect and pleasing to God. He comes into the world, and and there's this this restoration of what it looks like and, and should be experienced when you're living in perfect relationship with God. In fact, Jesus was what Adam had once been. And Jesus was what God intended us to be. Jesus is the Son of God. He's not only the Son of God. There are some other statements in here that are important for us to note. 
He was the son of man. He was born of a woman. So he's the son of God. He's the son of man. He's the son of Adam. He was fully human. He was tempted and troubled. He suffered. He was persecuted. He was hated. He was killed. He went through the same things that we will go through because he was the son of man, the son of Adam. However, unlike Adam, he did not suffer because of his own sin. Jesus was never disobedient. He was always perfectly obedient to the Father, as we discussed last week. He had to be obedient because that is how the relationship exists within the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are all in their relationship together, and they have their roles that they play, and they function within those roles. They're obedient to those roles. That's how the Trinity works. So Jesus was not and could not be disobedient. But he was the son of God and the son of Adam. And here's kind of where I want to start pointing us for the rest of our time. He was both the son of God and the son of Adam. He was both the son of divinity and, or divinity and humanity. The son of divinity and humanity. He was the son of David, so he was royalty. He was the king. He's the son of Abraham, and, and what we're going to learn through the, the understanding that Paul is going to teach us later in Galatians 3, 16, it says that the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. So Jesus Christ would become the literal fulfillment of the promise that was given to Abraham thousands of years prior. And so just like with the Passover, we have, we have the, 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 uh, the, the promise that is given, and then we have the type, the, you know, the shadow that looks like it, and then we have the fulfillment of it in Jesus Christ. With the Passover, we, the, uh, the Israelites celebrated the Passover for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, and that was a type and shadow of what would come with Jesus Christ dying on the cross. They were looking, it was pointing towards Jesus giving his life as a ransom for our souls, and the same thing with Abraham's promise, and the seed that would come would be, that was just a type and shadow of what was promised actually through Jesus Christ, that he would be the true legitimate seed of Abraham fulfilling God's promise to the world. But in 1 Corinthians and in Romans, uh, we also learn this about Jesus Christ, that even though he was born in the line of Adam, he is also the last, or as uh, one of my favorite Christmas carols puts it, the second Adam. Hark the herald angels sing, one of the lines says, Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. This is Paul talking. He's addressing some of the concerns that had been raised about the idea of the resurrection and, and some of the debate that had been taking place. And so he was kind of addressing that. And in the context of that, he says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Death came through a man, that would be Adam, but resurrection comes through Jesus Christ. So the first Adam was, was Adam, and the second Adam was Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 
says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, and then he goes on to explain what he's talking about there a little bit more. So sin entered the world through Adam when he disobeyed God, and that's how sin came into the world. That's how we are all born as sinners. And death through sin, so because of sin, now there's death in the world, and this way death came to all humanity, all people, that's us, because we have all sinned. So that's what happened through Adam. That's, that's Adam's heritage for all of us. Could have had everything perfect, he messed it all up, and now we're all stuck under the curse, thanks to Adam. Way to go, bro. But then the second Adam, the last Adam, the final Adam, verse 18, consequently, just as one trespass, one sin, the sin of Adam, one disobedience to God resulted in condemnation for all people. So just in the same way, in the exact same way as that happened, so also one righteous act, the act of Jesus Christ on the cross, dying, paying for our sins, being risen from the dead, one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Through the disobedience, we're all sinners. Through obedience, we are made righteous. Because he had one act of disobedience, we're all messed up and cursed. Because he followed through in the one act of righteousness, his obedience leads us to righteousness. Through Adam, through, through the work of Adam and his mistake, all men are cursed. We're cursed through Adam. But through Christ, all men can be set free. Through Adam, all men die. Through Christ, all men can live. That's the first Adam and the second Adam. That's good news. Through this one righteous act, we can live. An important note about the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that Paul is talking about the resurrection that we are still awaiting. So even though all of us will have to go through the process of death, death has no victory over us because of the promise of Jesus Christ. And in fact, someday, death will be completely destroyed through the victory of Jesus Christ. We have not yet reached that day. We all still have to go through death unless Christ comes before we have to die. But death has been defeated through Christ. So death becomes a transition for us, not a termination. The last Adam... The first Adam, the first son of God, the heavenly son of God. It's interesting to note that this heavenly son, Jesus Christ, this, this heavenly child that was born, born through the Holy Spirit and Mary. So Joseph was not his father, was not his biological father. The heavenly son, the son born of heaven onto earth, was adopted by an earthly father. The heavenly son, Jesus Christ, was adopted by an earthly father, but now through Christ, 
We, as earthly sons and daughters, are adopted by our heavenly Father to become sons and daughters of God. There's some, some debate and some question about, you know, about the genealogies because of the fact that Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. Jim shared a great insight that even though he was not a biological father, that the rights of sonship could be passed on through adoption and that there are, in fact, instances as you go back through the genealogy where you can see potential adoptions that come into the line to be a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ coming to us. So, there's some debate, you know, some people, some, some people say that one genealogy is Joseph's genealogy. They, say that, they would say that, uh, that Matthew's genealogy would be the line of Joseph and that Luke's gene- genealogy would be the line of Mary, and that's why he uses at the beginning of the genealogy the supposed son of Jesus, and then, you know, that would be easy to kind of defend because Luke has spent so much time with Mary because Mary was traveling with, with Paul and Luke, and so that's where, where Luke probably got most of his information about Jesus, and so it's very, it's very understandable that that could, in fact, be the case. But I think for us, really, the most important thing is that, that Christ himself the Son of God became a son of man so that the sons of man could become sons of God. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, now God has adopted us into sonship. More on that in just a minute. Galatians chapter 3 says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That means you, because you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you have already put your faith in Jesus Christ, that now you are considered through Christ Jesus an adopted son, an adopted daughter. You are an heir to the royal throne of the God of the universe. John 1.12 says that, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believed in his name. So if we believe in his name, if we believe in the kind of belief that we've talked about, the belief that you're willing to reorient your entire life around the message, the story, and the person of Jesus Christ, if you believe in Christ in such a way, then you are now a child of God. And 1 John 3.1 says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, the Father has lavished on us, that we would be called children of God. And that's what we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Because Christ was, in fact, the Messiah, that gives us this fulfilled promise in the here and now that right now we can rest in the assurance that because Jesus paid the price for our sins, this great love that he showed us on the cross, he paid for it all because of what he did for us on the cross, we can, in fact, be children of God because, Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in him. He chose you, he, he chose me before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined, because he could see before anything had happened, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. 
In other words, he, he chose before you were born, thousands of years before you were born, in time that we can't even understand, before we came into existence, that God chose for you and for me to be adopted into the kingdom, to be adopted into the family of God, and he did it because it brings him pleasure in accordance with his pleasure and his will. God is pleased to bring children into his kingdom. And when you are a child, God is pleased with you. It doesn't mean we're always perfect. It doesn't mean we always live perfect, sinless lives like Christ did. That, you know, that, that throughout the process of sanctification, of going through this process of, of being continually set apart for God's work and his ways, there's things that God is going to have to chip out and, and prune out of our lives so that we can look more like him. But as our status stands with him, because our status is not dependent on our works, our status is dependent on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, God is pleased with you to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Romans chapter 8, verse 14 says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have been baptized and you have now received the gift of the Spirit of God, you are filled with God's Spirit because you are one of his children, you are a child of God. And this spirit, the spirit that you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. So we were slaves under the, the spirit we were born with, with Adam. And, and what happened there? We were slaves to corruption and condemnation. But this spirit doesn't make us slaves so that we live in fear again. Rather, the spirit we received through Jesus Christ brought about our adoption to sonship. And by him, through Christ, through, through this work, through this adoption of Jesus Christ, we now have a relationship with the Father like Adam had in the beginning. Not completely like that, but we're getting closer and closer every single day as we follow him where we call him Abba, Father. We can come to him and say, Daddy, Father. The, formal, the formalized process of coming to Christ is gone now, or coming to God is gone, and through Christ we have direct access to the Father. And the Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, just like what happened, not maybe to the same extreme, but like what happened when Jesus was baptized and, and God the Father testified about his Son. Now the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. The genealogy, the ancestry, the lineage of Jesus Christ is important is because we become adopted into the line of the Son of God through the work of Jesus Christ. And if we are children, then we're not just children. We're not just, you know, we're not just foster children waiting to be picked up by somebody who will care enough. But now we have been literally brought into the kingdom of God. We brought into the line of Jesus Christ himself, the line that goes all the way back to the very beginning through Adam, through the beginning to the Son of God, and we are now heirs and co-heirs in the kingdom of God. And that's good, good news. What does that mean for us practically? 
like I said in the beginning, ancestry is important, it's good and fun, nothing wrong with learning where you came from, but what is the basis of your identity? What is the basis of, of who you say you are? When you, when you think about, this is, this is what makes me who I am, this is, this is, this is me, this is David. Is it, is it the fact that I come from the Lindner line or that I come from the Wilson line? When I think about what makes me me, is it because I think about all of the things that, that went well in my lineage and all of the things that went bad in my lineage and, and the good things I use for my benefit and the bad things I use as excuses so I don't have to continue to work at becoming a better person? What is it that drives your identity? Where are you finding your identity as a person? Is your identity in, in your work? Is your identity in your independence? I think for a lot of us out here in the Northwest and on the West Coast, we are, as the commercial has said, fierce, independent thinkers. And that's become an identity for a lot of people in our area. Are we, are we fierce, independent thinkers? Is that what defines us? Is that what makes us who we are? What, what is the basis of your identity? Or have we surrendered those things? Have we laid those things down? Have we sacrificed those things and said, know what, the only thing that matters to me is that I am found in Christ. I was lost before. All, all of that stuff, all of that ancestry, is, as fun as it may be to learn all of those things, all of that was just the lost me before coming to Christ. And, and now that I'm in Christ, all that matters is I'm, I'm found in Christ. This is where I belong. This is this is my line. I was, I was once an outcast, but I've been adopted into the family. I was once a reject, but now I've been adopted as a son or as a daughter into the family of the King of kings and Lord of lords, and I actually have a reserved seat at the table with the Prince of Peace, and now I get to sit down and dine with him. Is this your identity, or is your identity in something else? And as we look at the basis of Jesus' identity before he begins his ministry, I think we need to check, what's our identity? What defines you? What defines me? And if there's anything else, anything else at all in our lives that we would say, this is, this is who I am, and the answer to that question is not a son of God, then we've got some repenting to do. I'm going to be pu publishing some articles that I've been doing. The, the study last week really uh, gave me a lot of, a lot. I wanted to dig deeper on this idea of, of repentance, fruit, and keeping with repentance. And so I'm going to do my best to explain that through, uh, I'll post some articles and share them with you in our Facebook group and our workplace group, but the fruit that God desires from us is the fruit that he wants to produce through us. But we have a responsibility to some things if we're going to be faithful and, and ready for him to produce fruit through us and being in the vine. And that should be our focus. Our focus should be on what is it that has been given to us to do so that we can be found in Jesus Christ. We can be attached to the vine. We can be receiving from the vine through Jesus Christ himself everything we need for life and godliness. And when we aren't 
finding ourselves in Christ. We're finding ourselves in these other things. We're finding ourselves in our work, in our hobbies, in our relationships. When we're finding ourselves in these other things, we, we're not actually attaching ourselves to the vine, and we don't have the ability to receive through those things what we were designed to receive through the vine of Jesus Christ himself for life and godliness. And so some of us continue to struggle on and on and on because, because we're actually trying to do things in our own strength, and what we need is to actually be attached to the vine and receive the strength from Christ and let Christ produce the fruit in our lives. And to do that, to be faithful, we have to what's called abide. We have to remain. We have to remain in the vine. Jesus, it was kind of a, an, an ambiguous, vague concept for me until I really studied that passage this week in John chapter 15. Jesus makes it clear what abiding is. If you look and if you read, you, you'll hear the exact words of what it means to abide, to be found in Christ and abide in the vine is to do what he commands. Doing what God has given us to do, doing what Jesus Christ has commanded us to do, the things that Jesus said to do, are the things that keep us attached to the vine, that keep us in relationship with him. And then through that relationship, as we are faithful to the commands of Christ, God will produce the fruit in us that is in keeping with repentance because we've turned away from the things that we were hoping would produce fruit. We've turned towards Christ who can actually produce fruit in us. And the fruit in keeping with repentance is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness and self-control. Some of us try to produce the fruit in our own strength, and what we need is to be faithful in the commands God has given us and trust that through the outworking in our faithfulness and living out those commands, God will be at work producing the fruit in our lives. So I don't know where you are. I don't know if you're, if you're if you're finding your identity in something else and you've been putting all of your hope and your faith and your ability to work your way to what you hope you're going to receive someday, maybe that's where you are and I, I want to pray for us if we're there this morning. Maybe, you, maybe you're good. Maybe you've been, you've been faithfully coming to Christ and I want to just pray for the perseverance that comes in, in following Jesus Christ. But wherever we are, the most important thing that we need to understand is that that God's statement about us is what's true. No matter what the world says, no matter what the world may say to try to throw us off of this truth and get us to believe something else, that what God says is true for us. And if we want to go the way of God, we have to believe the truth of God and become the truth of God every single day. Would you stand? Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for how thorough and detailed you were. I thank you for the depth of the detail and the story of Jesus Christ. I thank you for the depth of the detail and, and the prophecies about him hundreds of years prior to him walking on the earth. I thank you for the depth of the detail with which you inspired Luke and Matthew and John and the other New Testament writers to, to share with us the details, to, to give us those facts, the, the basis, the underlying basis that, that the claims Jesus made are true because we can see the truth with which he came. 
thank you for that. I thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. I thank you for salvation through Jesus Christ. I thank you that I am, through his work, righteous in your sight. I thank you that, that, that you now see me as your son, that you see us as your children, that you see us as adopted into the family, and you think of us as your own children. I thank you that, that you have so graciously provided so much for us, that you have been so generous and abundant to us in giving us your love. I thank you for the freedom that comes in Christ, that, that through being in Christ, we are now free. We're no longer slaves to corruption, but we are free to be righteous. I thank you that we can now come to you through, through the final high priestly work of Jesus Christ. Now we have access to you, and we can come directly to you, our Father, and cry out to you, Father, Daddy, Abba. Thank you for all of these amazing, remarkable, indescribable gifts. We have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to overwhelm our lives with gratitude if we will simply open our eyes to see it. Father, I pray that you give us eyes to see your goodness, eyes to see your grace, eyes to see your love, eyes to see your compassion. And I pray, Father, that even though we were once blind and now we see, I pray, Father, for blindness to the things we once saw and sight for the things you want us to see now. Father, I pray for that freedom for all of us. I pray that you would help us to walk in the gift that's already been given. Help us to walk in the gift of sonship, the gift of adoption. Father, for those of us here who have been putting our identity and finding our identity and putting our hope in something besides you and trying to find ourselves in anything besides you, I pray, Father, in this moment that you would help us to repent of that, to turn away from that thing that has consumed our attention and our affection and to turn our hearts and our minds, our souls and our spirits towards you, our Lord and our Savior, once and for all that we would have eyes only to see you, eyes only to look on your ways, eyes only to read and discover your truths, hearts only open to your leading and your prompting, eyes only open to what you want us to see and how you want us to be. And for those who have been faithful at this, Father, thank you for providing them with what they need to be faithful. Thank you for the strength that you've given them to be faithful examples to us. And I pray, Father, as will most certainly come, that you would give them the faith to endure persecution and trials, give them faith to walk through the things that will question and maybe seek through the enemy to shake their faith to the very core. But, Father, we know that through Christ we are overcomers and that he has already conquered Satan and all of his schemes and that through him we are now conquerors and that there is no authority of Satan in our lives but that Jesus Christ is the only and final ultimate authority in us. Father, help us to look on that, to receive that and to live that out for your glory. And that in this, in this life that you've given us to live, in this adoption through sonship into Jesus Christ, we may live our lives for the praise of his glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray.